for the most part, I feel people use them out of ignorance themselves. I it looks to me, it looks just like a plague of ignorance. <laughs> That's a good way to put the internet, really. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode thirty. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Everybody, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Please head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and join me through the Facebook tab at my Eating Liberty Facebook group. There you'll find like-minded folks interested in lots of food and at least less government. Uh, please also do support me through the Patreon button, also on the podcast page. You can click over to my Patreon site and see what bonuses I have for the various support levels. Uh, do subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and like the show and leave a positive review. That helps move the show up and that means more people can find it. The more people who find it, are more people who can get cooking. Also, please do share the show with your friends on Facebook and on Twitter. As the school year is winding down, have you been pleased with the work from your state schools with your kids? If you have wondered about a better way, let me suggest you click over to the Ron Paul curriculum with my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com homeschool. You can read the 28 reasons why the Ron Paul curriculum is better, and I'm going to tell you two. One, students learn to start an online business, which will include proficiency in computer, website building, copywriting, and merchandising. The other reason is the academic boot camp course developed by Dr. Gary North, the curriculum director. The bootcamp course empowers students to master new information and gives them an edge for the rest of their lives. Every course comes with Ron Paul's money-back guarantee. See the website for details, culinarylibertarian.com homeschool. That's culinarylibertarian.com homeschool. My guest today is Derricka Claus, a homeschooling mom, a podcaster, and author of Think for Yourself, a book about critical thinking for teens. I'll let Derricka speak about why she wrote it, but I do want to say something about technology. I've re-recorded some of my parts due to a series of pops and clicks I could not eliminate. Some parts where those pops and clicks were minor and not really a distraction I left in because of the spontaneity of our dialogue. Now, I'm sorry about that. I've learned something about my tools that I didn't know. Uh, I do want you to know that next time that's not going to happen. However, our conversation was an excellent one, and I think if you can tolerate those little pops and clicks, the content will be well worth your sacrifice. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, Derricka. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. So I reached out to you because I know you have a book on critical thinking 
aimed at uh, medium-sized people, and I have one of those. Now, she has been coming home from school armed with misinformation uh, of various kinds, and some of it is factually wrong, uh, and some of it is <laughs> logically wrong. And the factual stuff, I can fix that. I can I can look that up. I can handle that. It's the improper thinking, the incorrect thinking, the drawing false conclusions problem that I'm struggling with. And I said, you know what? I know who to talk to. So here we are talking about thinking. So before we get into the part about how to, how to unthink or rethink, <laughs> that sounds so Orwell, uh, before we get into the part about why we're here, Tell us about your book and tell us about the genesis of this book. Sure. Okay. So my book is available on Amazon and it's called Think for Yourself, a critical thinking workbook for beginners. And the way that this came about is, um, first thing you need to know about me is that I homeschool my children. Um, so I have a 16-year-old, almost 17, and then an 11-year-old and a 6-year-old, all boys, <laughs> and I homeschool them. So my um, my middle son, I don't do much with the oldest anymore. He's studying independently for his GED, and that was his choice, and that's fine. But my middle son is still, I'm still very involved in his day-to-day schoolwork at this point and having trouble with reasoning. He needed practice with reasoning through problems that he'd have just in daily life. So I was like, well, it's about time for him to have some critical thinking work in his curriculum. So let me see what I can find. And so I looked and I looked and I looked and I read hundreds of reviews on dozens of, you know, of um, publications. And I could not find a single one that didn't have people exposing it as bearing heavy intrinsic political biases in it. And of course, that bothers me. I don't want to put a workbook in front of my kid that has somebody else's opinions presented as the only rational conclusion at the end of the critical thinking process. That's not what critical thinking is about. It's not about telling kids what the answer is that they should have arrived at. And I I really didn't want that. And I couldn't find anything for him to work through that didn't have that included in it. Um, So I was like, well, you know, (laughs) I'm just going to have to write it myself. So I, I spent you know, a whole, almost a whole day just in, you know, pen and paper, um, because we do his work in notebooks and just writing out this whole like lesson for him. Um, and then I expanded it every day for about a week. And by the end of it, I was pretty pleased with how it turned out. I mean, I could have done some things better, but I was like, well, okay, so I, I need to keep this for Declan, my youngest. So I'll type it up and I'll make the changes that I wanted to make to make it better. Um, so that it's something that I'll feel really good about putting in front of him when he's ready for it. And then I was bouncing it off of my friend Jason Booth on Telegram. We we use the Telegram app for staying in contact and for our podcast. And so I was I was bouncing parts of it off of him. And he was like, yeah, this is really good. You should think about publishing this. Because I know a lot of people who would be interested in having something like this for their kids. And, you know, if they don't have to reinvent the wheel and somebody's already done it, then, you know, 
everybody wins. I thought that wasn't a bad idea. So I did some research on how I could get, you know, copies of this to people that might want it. And Kindle Direct Publishing just happened to be the easiest free way for me to do that. And they do keep a big chunk of the money, but I didn't do it for money. I just was hoping people would find it useful. So that's where it came from. You know, I, I spent like Christmas break, I think, putting it together and getting it up on on Amazon. And then, yeah, that's that's the whole story of how it came into being. Um, I'm working on two more, but I probably won't do much with them until summer because, you know, <laughs> homeschooling takes up a lot of my time. Yeah. And then there's housework and feeding everyone and my own workout. And I mean, just the days I don't even know what happens to them at this point. So, <laughs> um, oh, and the dogs, of course. But So yeah, over the summer, I'm going to be putting together Speak for Yourself, which is going to be about rational communication, and then Act for Yourself, which is going to be about logical behavior. Um, so I'll have a trilogy <laughs> by the end of this. Well, that's cool. I didn't know about that part. So that's that's impressive. Now, one of the things that was interesting to me, and I looked, you know, you've only got a few chapters in here, but they're good chapters, including the, the basic to mm-hmm. what is critical thinking, uh, logical fallacies, first principles, important concepts, and then steps to critical thinking. I was looking at this and even reflecting on my high school experience, I didn't get that stuff. Now, I went to a very small, in Michigan, they grade them by uh, letter grade. So grade class D high school, um, mm-hmm. my graduating class was a whopping 53. So we were not, Whoa. <laughs> a, yeah, we were not a big school. It's, it's possible that for reasons of size and budget and other things, they weren't teaching that. But I really sort of think they probably weren't teaching that anywhere. No, my graduating uh, class was like 800 and we didn't get any of this. Well, so there, that sort of supports it, that it's, it's just gone by the wayside. And I think this would work, certainly would have worked for me in working and learning some of these skills to share with her and recognizing some of these things that are happening. Um, right. And with, this, this all um, Aristotelian logic like this was a heavy part of the classical education model. Um, but that was before the Prussian model got widely adopted, which, of course, anybody who's looked into it knows the Prussian model is intended to create, to churn out tax cattle, obedient, you know, drones that just just smart enough to pull a lever and not smart enough to question what they're told. So I, I think that's why we don't have this in school anymore. That's why kids don't get taught this. Because it it makes them dangerous to establish power structures. Well, that's another show, but I think that there's probably, there's yes. probably, there's probably another career. But yeah, I think there's a lot to that idea. Yeah. Uh, so just really quickly, or sort of quickly, the comment my daughter shared was that her teacher was saying there are no organic gardens. None. Her support was, suppose you have a garden in your backyard and you use weed killer in your front lawn. Now a little birdie flies and lands on your front yard and now has weed killer on its wee teeny little feet. And the bird flies to the garden. Now upon landing in the garden, those those wee teeny little feet now have contaminated instantly the entire garden. Well, (laughs) 
<laughs> That's absurd. But she's got a captive audience. And she's letting them draw the conclusion that these wee teeny little feet, contaminated with weed killer, are turning what is an organic garden trafe. Well, so 12-year-olds aren't going to challenge the teacher. They're not going to ask for the evidence for support because 12-year-olds, they may do that to their parents, but they're not going to do that in school. So she's got this, 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 this group so I can see the error that she's making, and I can't identify it, but uh, it's almost, to me, kind of like leading the witness, and of course, that's not it. So that was the big push. The big thing to me is, that, all right, we need to find a way to learn when something sounds wrong to be able to identify it, label it, and then think about it the right way. Which why state education became compulsory, <laughs> so that we had to make our kids sit and listen to them while they were young and, you know, and intellectually vulnerable. So, but yeah, no, it, it's, I, I understand what you're saying. It's, there are several fallacies in the thinking there that led to that, but what kid is going to question their teacher? They're taught that the teacher is, the authority, the teachers there to teach them and make them smarter or more informed. Um, and they, they don't suspect that the teacher is no more informed than they are. <laughs> they would never su suspect that. No, I, I think that that's true. And I, oh, separate from the conversation about the book, one of my great frustrations is that whatever Whatever the particular period is, she comes back and so she knows that I'm going to drill her when I when I see her. Uh, what did you learn today? What happened? What happened? What happened? And I've explained to her the reason I'm asking questions is because I want to know I want to know what I have to fix. Um, right. So one of the teachers had commented about how eh, North Korea ain't so bad. Oh my goodness, really? All right. <laughs> so we have to have a conversation about communism. Um, right. But this was something a little bit out of my wheelhouse. Um, but also, my hope is that she's going to at least be able to say this doesn't even to herself. I don't expect her to speak up in class as a as a twelve year old. That's that's right. more. But to in her brain say this just sounds too strange. I need to I need to find out what's going on here, and right. to develop for her own self the ability to recognize well, recognize improper thinking when she hears it. Right, you know? and, and and be willing to do her own independent research, see if it makes sense. Well, learn, and that's the thing that I think is important. And we're getting back to, I wasn't taught, and you weren't taught critical thinking skills. And learning how to do a research paper just isn't enough. I think the idea of learning how to investigate what sounds like incorrect or just wrong, because a kid might not know it is incorrect but can sense something's not right, is a very focused kind of study and research and is not the same as let's do a research paper on elephants. It's a good skill to know how to get information about elephants, and to know the difference between the Asian elephant and the African elephant and what they eat and they like to play. And hey, elephants can swim. Those are fine and necessary skills to develop, but that does not provide the tools necessary to discriminate fact from fiction 
That's what I want for her. I feel it is my obligation to give her these tools so she can succeed in the world. Right. And I love that you called it a skill because a lot of people seem to think that, oh, well, um, it's just something you're born with. Either you think this way or your mind works that way. No, it is a skill. You can develop this skill. Anybody can develop skills in critical thinking. It is just about understanding the concepts, the process, what constitutes evidence and what does not, what constitutes a logical argument and what does not. Um, so that's, and that's exactly why I wrote this because it is a skill. You know, my, my 11 year old had said, oh, but mom, my mind just doesn't work that way. There was a, um, some science question I had put to him that he just couldn't uh, wrap his mind around and oh but my brain just doesn't work that way and I said if it doesn't work that way it's only because you haven't trained it to you can develop this it is a skill not a talent you don't have to be born with it uh, I said and I'm going to prove it to you <laughs> so that's why I did this <laughs> and, and so now proving is is making the lesson too so it's right exactly <laughs> All right, I want to jump ahead and just focus on two parts in particular because I think these are really important parts. I, I, I don't think we can separate any one of them and say this is more important. But for me, uh, I think this is a really important idea, uh, and mm -hmm. that is recognizing first principles. And Absolutely. I, this was as a phrase. Again, this is don't, I didn't bump into this as a phrase until just a few years ago listening to economists uh, discussing economy, but also talking about first principles. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, <laughs> I, I like the sound of the phrase, but I don't know what it means. So are, mm -hmm. are there universal first principles or do they, are they, are they malleable person to person or what, what is a first principle? Right. And that's, you know, I had that same question when I ran into the phrase and then I dug into it more and I realized, no, this is, this is how my brain already works. Okay, so this one really made sense to me. Um, first principles aren't, it doesn't have to do with what we, how we often use the word principles to indicate like personal morals or ethics or things like that. What first principles is, is breaking a problem down into its most basic elemental building blocks. The very first principles or concepts you have to understand before you can start reconstructing this problem in a way that makes sense um, and that can help you solve the problem or help you look at it in a new way. So um, the way that the, the thing that I compare first principles to in this chapter of my book is the difference between a cook and a chef. A cook will follow somebody else's recipe. A cook, you know, they may be a great cook and they can follow any recipe in the world. That's fine. The difference between a cook and a chef is that a chef understands their ingredients in a way that allows them to create new combinations of ingredients and allows them to innovate. There is no innovation without first principles because you have to understand the very basic ingredients of the problem before you can turn it into something new. 
for a new solution. So the cook is not using first principles if we're using this metaphorically. And the chef, because the chef understands the basic flavor profile of every ingredient that they're using and creates new recipes. So first principles is a creative force because you're breaking down what is known or what is accepted as known or what is generally thought to be the way things are done or the way things are understood. You're deconstructing it all the way back down to the bone and you're making something new. Did you pick the cook chef reference because you're on my show? I have a few recipes of my own that I've come up with that I that the whole family enjoys. But that's just what I thought of when I was thinking of first principles. I didn't want anything in the book to be political. So every example that I use in this book is an example from everyday life, something kids might encounter that has nothing to do with politics. I didn't even want to reference anything, any of the big philosophical debates. So I had to come up with examples that were just from everyday living. And so that's the one that popped in my head <laughs> when I was thinking about first principles. I was like, okay, well, who constructs, you know, like who, you know, let's think of professions and then who really deconstructs something to create something new. And that example just seemed to make the most sense to me hmm. personally. <laughs> well, it's a reference that I can use very well. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. you and I have that in common. We we love food. <laughs> yes, we do. Even so, even with an ingredient. So let me just, I want to really push this a little bit. So the ingredient of an onion in mm -hmm. particular uh, is is an interesting choice because we have a couple of different colors, which are relatively insignificant in the end. In the end, we're going to take this onion, which has very high sulfur content, and when you cut it, it mixes with oxygen and it makes sulfuric acid. That's why your eyes cry, but we apply heat to it. Mm. And over, over a really slow, long cooking period, I can take this thing that is acrid and tart and, and tear-inducing and turn it into a, an unctuous, sweet, delicious thing by transforming right. it. And I've... Right. And, and also, and I forget what the substance is called, um, onions contain a substance that is, there's some evidence to believe that it, it sensitizes the taste buds to other flavor profiles, that like it wakes your taste buds up. So there is, there's a reason to put it in recipes that you might not think to put it in if you know that about it or, or put some form of onion or you know, places people would never think to, you know, put an onion, <laughs> right. you know, if, if you understand the basic properties of an onion, like these first principles, you understand what it tastes like, how it can be altered, what it does in a recipe, then you've broadened your horizons for using onions in your kitchen, if that makes okay. sense. It does. So now I want to, because... I want to sort of put this onto the the other half of the show's name, so let's turn this into a little a little bit political, a little bit ideological. Sure. So, from the libertarian standpoint, we would say we have the non-aggression principle. Mm -hmm. Do do not initiate force. You certainly you can defend yourself. Someone right. punches you. 
you know, two hits. I hit you, you hit the ground. Um, right. And to me, it's more, the non-aggression principle is more how to decide who was in the wrong. Um, rather than like a rule everybody has to follow, it's more like, did you, are you the one who started this? If you are, then you're wrong. Well, you, you, yeah, but so this is yeah. where now we're getting nuanced into something that sounds on its face. The non-aggression principle is don't hit. Right. <laughs> and, and that's really the easiest one. And this one that I'm saying to my children, hey, hey, hands yourself. No, just, you know, don't don't hit anybody. We don't we don't hit here. Um, right. But let's say now we're applying some politics to it and we want to we're going to advocate for a minimum wage of fifty dollars an hour. Right. Well, now, even though we, we aren't going to blows with anybody, we are initiating a kind of force against an entire group of people for mm-hmm. whom unemployment is absolutely guaranteed because they can't meet the bare minimum of skills to earn $50 an hour or $20 an hour. And not only, not only that, but... Every law ever written is ultimately backed by a death threat. If you think about what the cost is of persistent disobedience. So in the very end, if you push them all the way, the state will kill you for defying them. So every law that they write is backed by a death threat. So employers, when you have a a mandated minimum wage, employers are being threatened with death ultimately if they don't comply so threats of violence fall under this as well it's still coercion you are still pointing a gun at someone essentially and forcing them to do your will so that's that's how that i mean it's force every direction except at the government of course (laughs) i mean that's all the government can do that's all the government is, is force. They can't create. They can't employ without stealing. Nothing the government does can be done without force. So that's, to me, that's the ultimate argument for, you know, extreme libertarianism or anarchism or whatever. Or anarchism. Yeah. So talking with normal folks. Mm-hmm. I'm explaining to them, don't hit. There are very few people who aren't going to at least understand. Right. Don't be, don't offensively hit. Just, you know, that's just, they get that. That's, that's not a stretch. To, right. But then even the suggestion that something the state's doing mm-hmm. is. Violent. A force of violence. It's, it becomes, and, and I, I struggled with this, and sometimes I still do. It become it can be extremely difficult to recognize and see that this is the case. And right, and that's because people are not employing first principles. That's a really good tie back to that because the concept of the state and what the state does has already been built and handed to them, and they've never bothered to deconstruct it back to the first principles. And look at it from that new perspective. Hmm. So it's it's <laughs> I'm I'm having this vision of just scores and scores of people being in the Plato's cave allegory, and it's yes. You know, I have a shirt around here somewhere that says Plato's cave searching rescue team on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I think I need to make a mug like that. 
<laughs> yeah, you might be able to find it on Amazon still. I'm not sure. So. All right. So that now that's good. So I think we've, uh, to my satisfaction, now I've got a good, a better grasp my first principles, and now something that I can use and begin the, we'll say, reshaping process in my daughter's brain. Yeah, now let's go to the other one. Deprogramming or a little bit. Well, it's going to be yeah. it's going to be sort of a little bit of both. <laughs> a little bit of both on a daily basis. So let's go to logical fallacies. Now I've sure. looked into this myself because I've been interested in what they are, and there's some really really big ones that are used frequently and probably probably used intentionally by a savvy speaker to get a group of listeners to draw a wrong conclusion. I think that I think there's a manipulation happening willingly and on purpose, which may be the same thing. But right. I think there's also I think that's rare though. I think the, the right. I would say the the preponderance of fallacies used are used ignorantly. Um there are some people who will take the time to construct fallacious arguments that sound very logical to people who don't examine them. Um, and we know them as politicians and news anchors and, you know, um, lobbyists. But um, for the most part, I feel people use them out of ignorance themselves. I, it looks, to me, it looks just like a plague of ignorance. <laughs> I mean, that's a good way to put the internet, really. <laughs> well, I, I'm actually, for myself, I was speaking of the politicians. Uh, oh, yes. Okay. When, when you're talking with your buddy at the water cooler at work, you know, or, or, so to speak kind of thing. Um, no, I don't think I don't think the errors there are meticulously contrived. Right. Uh, I think they're just. And, and this is sort of kind of amazing that we have tens of thousands of people on a daily basis so uninformed yet magically tripping into these fallacies. Oh. So, one, they don't know that they're wrong. And two, the listener doesn't know that they're wrong. And mm -hmm. then you come across somebody who does. And, and now <laughs> the person who knows that those two are wrong is going to get beat up because... Burn them at the stake, those heretics. Yeah, because... <laughs> yes. Wow. So I, I can't even think. So like the bird, the bird with with roundup on his feet going into your garden, you know, that's as an example, it's idiotic and that's fine. And I, I'm my concern is that not that my garden is going to become inorganic because of a bird, but right. the what what's coming next? And I don't really think that what's I, the uh, point I, of arguing it i don't, right. I don't want to malign school teachers because school teachers are people and sometimes people have to do things put food on the table and so to say that there's a cl class there's anything to be said about them all as a group well <laughs> that's a logical fallacy so right uh, i th i think that there's probably very very many school teachers who really earnestly mean to do a good job and have mm -hmm. found themselves in the system which prevents that Yes. And there she may not mean harm, but unwittingly, giving this little birdie example, we're gonna go two weeks hence and have some other bigger example. We're gonna get down this road of almost irreversible thinking. So right. it's not the bird alone. I don't really care about the bird. I can demonstrate the ADC of that in five seconds. But mm -hmm. what's coming next? And what's coming right. next? And without my child telling me 
and without mm-hmm. prompting, uh, unless it, she actually has, and I'm so proud of her, she has a couple of times in the car, like, dad, 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 I gotta, I gotta tell you. It's like, yeah, all right. Right. So, so she knows, and she's recognizing that I want to know what's going on in her life because I want to make sure that she's getting the complete information. Derica, let's take a moment out for a word from one of my affiliates. Folks, giving your kids and you, if you need it, a head start to critical thinking is an amazing gift. Some of us need content we can listen to in 30-minute chunks of time. Gerard Casey's course, Introduction to Logic, at the Tom Woods Liberty Classroom is just the course to scratch that itch. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback, and on the courses page, look for the Introduction to Logic course. Listen in your car, to or from work, or in the gym, or at the stove. Bite back against the failed education from the state and learn all those courses they simply didn't teach. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback and look for Dr. Casey's intro course or others. The logic class has 20 lectures and the last two are on the fallacies. culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. Now, Back to the interview. Right. And and in that example that you give, I would think that the first the first question I would ask my kid if they came home and told me that their teacher had been talking about that, I would say, why do you think a teacher would stand in front of their class and be talking about this? What does this have to do with your education? What could the possible reason be? that the teacher feels that this needs to be said from a place of authority, children who are taught to look at them as an authority figure and an expert. What what could the possible motive be for speaking something that is fallacious, for using an argument that's fallacious in front of all you kids? And I think that's, to me, questioning motives is one of the best places to start. Because it really gets you thinking about, well, what is their end game? Why, what does this have to do with math or English or, you know, I mean, if it has to do with science, show me evidence. Science is supposed to be about evidence. And that's the, the critical thinking process is a lot like the scientific process. It's like the scientific method. Um, they're very, very similar. And I actually believe the scientific method might have arisen from the logical um, the logical thinking process. I think that was first. And then, you know, they, so they're very closely linked. But yeah, I, if you can question motives, if you can think about, well, maybe she's got something that she wants us to believe without questioning too much. Otherwise, she wouldn't be standing here telling it to us as an authority figure. She doesn't want us to question it. She wants us to just believe it. So that means we should definitely question it. <laughs> um, well, and that's what yeah. I want my children to do. <laughs> well, and so the other, so another example of it wasn't a logical fallacy; it was just flat out wrong information. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't even know how the topic came up, and I don't know what the class was, but she was talking about salt, sodium chloride, mm-hmm. and I had I've just 
two or three weeks ago, wrote a pretty long blog post about salt. And for years in the cooking industry, the last thing I ever even examined was salt. Because mm-hmm. just everyone uses it, but nobody thinks anything about it. So right. I was looking into it a lot and came to realize that, wow, have I been wrong, in- including wrong about um, artisanal salts or, you know, the pink Himalayan salts or any of the other sort of boutique salts. They're worth buying. And there's lots of reasons why they're worth buying. And the stuff that's in the blue can or the red box is worth avoiding. And there's lots of reasons that that's the case. But I didn't know any of these things, and I just learned it. So now she's telling these 12-year-olds. Now, she may not know what I know. She does now because I sent her the link. The information about heart disease mm-hmm. was built on faulty evidence. Right. And, and that has been demonstrated for, for a long time. But what we've discovered in the media is when the media grabs onto something, particularly if it sounds really juicy, Mm-hmm. It, truth or fiction is irrelevant. Right. It's going to sell soap. Run with that. And right. So, and particularly if it if it pleases the sponsors. Um, and one of the biggest lies ever told the American people was that fat is bad. Use sugar for flavor. Oh, and the I mean, obesity exploded after that. And heart disease exploded and still all this evidence that they were wrong and that, you know, the sugar lobby was actually just pushing that narrative and paying people off in order to, obviously they make a lot of money doing that. And still, there's still even doctors to this day that will put people on low fat diets thinking it's the healthiest thing for them. Well, yeah, there's always motives to be examined in everything that we're told. Well, and that's what I'm learning. I was reading uh, one of my favorite baker authors, one of his books from probably 15 years ago, back before we knew, we didn't know then what we know now about about fat for mm. baking. And there was a giant push to go away from butter and lard and to use canola oils, so all of his recipes, which require fat are saying go with canola oil. I think, well, he, he wasn't he wasn't being a bad person. He's a spectacular baker. He's a brilliant man. But right. he, he was as susceptible to wrong information as anybody else. And right. And back then the internet wasn't anywhere near as as fleshed out as it is these days. I no. mean you didn't have the access to information then that you have now. Well so. I mean what you know just so today is April eleventh and Julian Assange was arrested, and in minutes, in minutes, the entire world who has knew a Twitter account knew about it. Within, I mean, there's a picture of him coming out of the embassy. Like, right. The, the so, the ability to get information out is amazing. Whether or not the information is good or bad information, that's a completely different topic. Right, but, and it's so, it's so critical now to be able to employ critical thinking it's so important because we have so much more exposure to information than ever before and we have to be able to sort through it and determine what seems likely and what seems unlikely now i'm a fan of metaphysics and i don't i don't think that any of us can ever know the absolute truth of any situation for the most part i mean there's certain things that like, I know the truth of 
what I feel about things and things like that. But uh, things that happened elsewhere, I'll never know the full truth. And I understand that. So the best I can do is to determine what seems likely and what seems unlikely. And I do go into that in the book quite a bit. I, you know, I tried to keep it. I tried to keep it away from saying you'll get the right answer if you follow these steps. That's not what this book is about. This book is about finding the best answer you can with the evidence you have. Um, and I think that's more reasonable. <laughs> well, I think that's also a really good approach because I think the, the... You want to stay open to new evidence. And that's the whole point. <laughs> well, yes, and I think, but I think by using the word find the right answer creates mm. a... So I'm, I'm, I might trip over the words here, but I think using saying the word find the right answer in, the, in mathematics, there is easily the right answer and there's all the wrong ones. But right. in, in a thinking exercise, finding the right answer suggests that when you get there, you stop. You, right. you seek no more. And I think that's a real fundamental error in thinking or in learning or researching. And if, let's tie it back into diet and fat and food. Uh, Everybody that, knew that fat was bad, and there was, but, you know. But, so we're we're ba- we're faced with wrong evidence there, mm-hmm. which may have been manipulated. So, but that's I, I wasn't there. I don't know what Keyes saw, but mm-hmm. the suggestion that going to a post-war Christian nation after or during Lent, and to be surprised that this broke. Lenten nation isn't eating meat and not recognize that these are two really important factors why they're not eating meat and to say, hey, look, no meat diets are healthy. Well, that's that's glossing over a lot of other things that became important. And and just boom, that was doctrine for many, many years. And we're struggling still to get past that. Because Uh, it fits someone powerful's narrative. Oh, fits lots of people powerful now. Yeah. So that's, you know, somebody powerful, somebody with a lot to lose, somebody with a lot gain. All these people have agendas. And our job is to imagine what those might be and how they might affect their behavior and how they might affect their honesty. So um, let me ask you this question. Mm. Since we... All of us have the frailties of humanness mm-hmm. at some philosophical level. Are we not all imbued with some kind of agenda? Oh, yes, absolutely. We absolutely are. The, the question is, should your agenda be forced on me? Should my agenda be forced on you? Should I be lying to advance my agenda or should people be, let's say I'm lying. Um, should people just be accepting it without questioning it? Uh, so everybody, absolutely. Everybody has self-interest. Everybody has their own agenda. And that is completely, I believe that that's, that's very likely to be true. Everybody has an agenda, whether it's a selfish one or not. I don't know. But my job is to determine whether I can live with it, whether I can live with other people's agendas, whether I feel like they've been honest with me, whether I think 
what they're pushing is harming me. Um, so that's ultimately that. I, and the way you could always put that, I guess, is is um, like the the burden of research that's on the consumer. You need to be an informed consumer of everything, of foods, of products, of services, of information, of scientific studies, of political rhetoric. You have to be an informed consumer. That is your responsibility to yourself because you're an individual and the results are your responsibility. The results for how you um, take in and interpret and handle and act on these things are your responsibility because it is your mind and nobody else can use it for you. That's that's kind of where I end up on that topic is, yes, everybody has an agenda and everybody's responsible for how they perceive the agendas of others, if that makes sense. Well, it does. And so it sounds like we're getting back to uh, having and knowing and recognizing first principles. Yes, absolutely. And first principles are indispensable in my opinion, they're absolutely cannot do without them indispensable for being an informed consumer. I think, well, I think first principles are useful just about everywhere in life, um, but they're especially useful in, in the idea of being a, an informed consumer. Um, and as I went through the list, that means more to me than just buying things from companies and form you're consuming things everywhere you go. Your, your mind is consuming information. You're consuming the story someone's telling you or the, their plea for help with this project or whatever that's all being consumed by you. So I, yeah, I think first principles are critical for that to help us understand what is logical, what's not. And to even understand where logic ends and our own emotional filters come in because there is a place for that in our lives. Sometimes logic can't give us a definitive answer. And at that point, we can go ahead and pick an emotional answer, but we have to understand that it is an emotional answer. We, we have to understand that we didn't arrive at it by logic. As long as we keep that in mind, there's nothing wrong with that. You have to start with an understanding of the very basic concepts of whatever you're thinking about. And that's first principles. It reminds me of that moment in, I don't even know what Star Trek movie it was, where Spock says to Kirk, you want me to guess? <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, yes. Because yeah. that's, you know, as, as the icons go in American culture, certainly in the last 40 years, uh, a person who is, well, a, an entity, because I don't know, he's half person, who right. is the most logical was Spock. Yes. And, and here comes this, this really tough moment right. where all the logic can't yeah. give you the answer to what to do. Right. And, okay. Right. And we can't forward, let our drive. You have to go right. back. So that's a, that's a, a different thing. And that's an interesting right. observation. Yeah. We can't let our drive for logic make us indecisive in the end. If something needs a decision and you run through the process and you can't find the logical answer, 
I mean, do your best. <laughs> That's what life is about. There's nothing wrong with even making mistakes. Do your best. If it was a mistake, fix it, you know? And a well-informed error now is a more well-informed person. So it's just, right. even, I got to tell you something, even, even the cook following mm-hmm. the recipe is going to make a mistake. Even the chef yes. developing the recipes, I promise you, we <laughs> have made lots of mistakes, but in the process of making the most mistakes and find out that, you know what, these two things just do not go together, but that mm-hmm. thing there goes really good with this. And so my error, which worked out fabulously, was that orange and rosemary are sublime together. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really, I, I sort of thought, well, this should go together, but I didn't really think through how well. And so uh, from the food aspect, mm-hmm. uh, I had some really amazing human mentors. Uh, when you could see them like, like licking the air. What are you, Jack, what are you doing? I'm, <laughs> I'm tasting the food in my brain. So right. He knows what these things, he knows what caramelized onions taste like, he knows what orange tastes like, he knows what all the oranges taste like, he knows what rosemary tastes like, all these things, put them together and you think about how they transform. And I thought, well, this isn't, so I sort of. And a picked, lot of times and, you'll be right. Sometimes you won't though. <laughs> what? If, so, and the more, this, this was back when I was like in third grade, the more input you have, this was their math books was everything was input and output. The more input you have, the more information you have about flavors, mm-hmm. the more sound your conclusion is going to be. Right. Right. And or the more right. likely you are to hit on something that works. Or to right. keep going for one more one more second. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well this was fascinating. I what a um, what a great talk. It was it was great. I, I enjoyed it. And I feel like I was able to even expand my own understanding. I, I love it when people ask me questions and make me explain things because it helps me even explore further into the intricacies of, of the ideas that, you know, that I um, invest a lot of personal energy into. Well, yeah, so sure. I, I appreciate a good stimulating talk like this. I really do. Absolutely. Okay, well, so the book is Think for Yourself, and I will have a link for that on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 30. Do you have a site or something else you want to tell people about, or that's good? Um, that's it for, for um, my own content, really. I am on a, on a podcast every other week, but it's it's rather explicit and okay. and we have a lot of fun, but it's called Anarchy Among Friends. And the great thing is that after doing this for two years, we're finally a legit podcast. We're on like Google Podcasts, so you could get us on Google Play. We're on Stitcher and and Anchor, like all these different podcatchers. So yeah. you know, you. yeah, it's about time. We've been doing it as YouTube live videos for two years. Uh, do you have an email list so people can sign up and get information about when the other books are ready? You know, I don't, but I'm what one of the things that I keep telling myself I need to do and maybe I actually will do it this weekend is setting up my Goodreads author profile. So at that point, I'll have a, a linked email address that'll go with that and and be able to update on there. Okay. Um, I just goodness, you know, I really 
sunk into the kids and making sure that I'm hitting every facet of their educations. And I, I just, every other project just kind of falls by the wayside during our school Well, you know, but take, take a lesson from the Woods household. This sounds like a great project for three kids to figure out how to make mommy an email account. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my 11-year-old knows more about that stuff than I do. So maybe I'll have him do it. <laughs> well, mine don't yet, but if once they get into it, they, they will eclipse me rapidly. I'm sure of that. My 11-year-old's had his own YouTube channel for like four years now. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, my, my seven-year-old just turned seven last week, um, watches some YouTube, but is growing finally, growing weary of the, I won't name him, the boy who tests toys. Oh, yes. And, and that boy who tests toys rakes in seven figures a year. Yeah. Yeah. And so she wants her own channel. She recorded one video. So this was funny. She recorded one little video making some clay thing and unprompted at the end said, if you like what I'm doing, don't forget the subscribe button. I think, wow. Oh, my gosh. I shot a video of Declan doing some of his math work because he wanted to. He was five years old. And he looks at the camera at the end and he goes, he goes, if you want to tell me what you want to see next time, comment below. Don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> I was like, what? He thinks he's a YouTuber. He doesn't know this is going up on Facebook. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if we did more crafts, we did something that seemed worthy of that, we'd do that. Because I still haven't. She wants her own. Anyway, I, I, yeah. this feels like one more thing to do. And I don't know. Yeah, I know. But it, yeah. was, it was really funny. And she, she looked at the camera. She's like, mm -hmm. good. really good. These kids. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> they just... They want to get their voices out to the world. They think that's cool. <laughs> so, well, if we figure out how to do it, I'm gonna, I'm gonna monetize her. She can pay for her own whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, do it. Just stay safe and let me know if you need any help. I'll yeah, find somebody who knows how to do it. <laughs> it well, Derek, I man, this was a great talk. It was spectacular. Thank you for your time this morning. Actually, well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, I hope the kids are not doing anything horrible. Oh, that I'm sure they're. Fine, I hope. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good afternoon, and I'll be seeing you in the interwebs. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. If you made it this far, you managed to endure the pops and cracks. Does it make it any easier to tolerate if I say it reminded me of old record albums? Is there a generation for whom record albums is just a gazed look of Huh? You've earned a break. On the podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts is a copy of my muffins ebook. You can download your copy or purchase it as a Kindle book and links for both are on that podcasts page. I am planning to speak with David Akimoto again next week about making cookies. You may remember David was the coffee and chalk guest, but you may not remember that David is a baker and owns his own cookie bakery in Thailand. He told me he is developing some new flavors, so I'm going to pick his brain about how to make the perfect cookie. It's going to be a lot of fun. Unfortunately, podcasts don't come with AromaCast. Have a good week. I'll see you soon.